Good. What did I just sing? Uh, we've been asking that question for the last several weeks, and um, uh, we get done singing a designated song, then I get up here and talk about what, what was that all about. And uh, if you missed any of those, go to YouTube. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel, or uh, we also have that on Podbean. If you're a podcast person, you can look that up and listen to them. Uh, if you can't find it, just ask, and uh, we'll, we'll help you out with that. But the purpose behind this series is to make sure that we understand some of the songs that we're singing uh, on a regular basis, I feel that in this day and age, there's just too many songs out there that we uh, sing that, that they might be good songs, but they're not necessarily good uh, for worship. And some of those songs we've, we've chosen not to do because, you know, we may have heard them on the radio. It's like, okay, that's great, but really, is that a worship song? And so we struggle with that sometimes. Uh, and, and I think that we just need to make sure we know what we're, we're singing. I've also heard some people say, particularly people who don't like hymns, I've heard them say, well, I just don't know what they're trying to say in those old hymns. And then I hear people who don't like contemporary music say, well, I just don't understand what they're saying in those new songs. And so at some point, I feel that we've we got to get on the same page. This worship war has to end, right? And as long as it focuses on Jesus, I don't care what kind of music it is, to be honest. As long as it focuses on Jesus, I, I love it all. And if it points to him, I'm all in. It does remind me of a story, though, of a couple of churches that I heard about, one in the country, one in the city. They decided to send, each church decided to just send a representative to the other church to see how they were doing things, and then they were going to report back and see what they learned at each church and try to learn from that church to try to do a better job of worshiping the Lord. So the guy from the country church, he went to the city church and he comes back to the board and the board says, well, how did it go? And he said, well, it was good, but they did something different there. They did, they did praise choruses instead of hymns. And, and one of the elders said, praise choruses, what are those? He said, well, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, only they're different. He said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, it's kind of like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a hymn. But if on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows. The black and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, corn, corn. If I were to say that and then repeat it about six or seven times, that would be a contemporary worship chorus. The board said, okay, we don't understand it, but maybe we'll give it a shot, right? Meanwhile, the church in town, their representative was reporting to his board. And they asked him, what was worship like in the country church? He said, well, it was good, but they did something different there. They sang hymns. Instead of regular songs. Hymns, one of the elders asked, what are those? He said, well, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs, only they're different. He said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a regular song. But if, on the other hand, I were to say to you, oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. <laughs> Inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? There in their heads there is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's Son or His reign, unless from the mild tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad bovine rebellious delight have broke free their shackles. 
their warm pins eschewed. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all mild Chilliwack sweet corn have chewed. <laughs> Did I just say Chilliwack? In a, I don't even know what that means. So look at the bright shining day by day by day where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. And then if I were to do verse 1, verse 2, skip verse 3, and then verse 4, and then do a key change before verse 4, that would be a hymn. Now that I've offended everybody, isn't it crazy how we argue sometimes over music. We just sang, I am the tabernacle of the Most High God. His Holy Spirit dwells inside of me, and I will live my life to glorify my King. I'm a vessel for His majesty. You say, well, okay, that's, ni that's nice, but what, what's this whole I'm the tabernacle thing? Because I remember growing up in the church uh, my grandfather used to preach at. It, it was called the Thompson Street Tabernacle, United Brethren in Union, which seemed redundant to me, United Brethren in Union. I would hope if they're united, they're in Union. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. But I didn't understand what Tabernacle was all about. It wasn't until I got into Bible college that I began to understand what they were even talking about. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're primarily going to be in that chapter uh, today. We'll skip around some other verses, and we'll have those on the screen. But just kind of hold your place there in Hebrews 9. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. And then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the Most Holy Place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. In case you weren't aware of it, the book of Hebrews, it's a, it, it's a book that is written to the Jewish people in the first century who had converted to Christianity, but they're under attack. They're feeling pressure from all sides. All of the Jewish culture are looking at these people who had converted to Judaism, and they're giving them a hard time. All of the Jewish authorities, the political authorities, their neighbors, they're all putting the squeeze on those people who were calling themselves Christians now. And the temptation for the Jews at that particular time, because of all of the pressure, would have been to turn their back on the commitment that they had made to Jesus and to start falling back in line with what the culture was telling them to do. And so I think the author's strategy in writing the book of Hebrews, which is led by the, the Holy Spirit, is to just give us Jesus in everything that he talks about. And the first eight chapters in the book of Hebrews has been comparing Jesus to some of the components in the Old Testament. And up to this point in this book, he's been showing us that the Old Covenant has been fulfilled. And the Old Covenant is better than the New Covenant. It has superseded the New Covenant that Jesus uh, 
brought in when he came into this world. And so we see the supremacy of Jesus. We see how he is superior to all of the Old Testament prophets, how he's superior to Moses, how he's superior to Joshua, how he's superior to Aaron and any other of the characters or the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. In chapter 8, if we back up just a little bit to what our text is today, chapter 8, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he's made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. And so I know a lot of people who say, well, we don't even have to pay attention to the Old Testament because it's obsolete. But it's not, it's not there for, for no, no reason, right? Just because it is not how we worship God now, that doesn't mean that it's not important. In fact, the tabernacle that we just sang about in the Old Testament, it pointed to the coming of Jesus, The tabernacle was a place of worship. It was set up by God for the Israelites. The Israelites at that particular time, they were basically nomads. They're living in tents. And and before the permanent temple was built, this is what God instructed them to do to worship him. And so the way the tabernacle was set up was, was kind of like this. It was about 45 feet long. Now, not the whole thing, but just that, that rectangular shape in the back with the columns and, and, and the curtains draped over there. About 45 feet long, 15 feet wide. It was this long rectangle, and it was divided up into two sections. You kind of got this two-part compartment in the tabernacle. You've got the outer area, which is called the holy place, completely enshrouded with these curtains. And then you have the inner area just on the other side of the curtain where you see it's kind of shiny there and you see that gold altar you see that table there that was called the most holy place or what some uh, translations particularly the King James would call the holy of holies and so you've got this two-part sanctuary and the author of Hebrews is describing the symbols that we find in that place of worship there were three symbols in the holy place there were seven symbols in the most holy place and he's describing them and So what I want to do is I want to look at those symbols and say, all right, what does that mean to me? We see these symbols, and how does that point to Jesus? Because here's the deal. Jesus, we know the Bible talks about him being our high priest, but the tabernacle was a place, the holy place was where the priests, only the priests could go and carry out their daily ministry. Only the priests could go in there. And they went in there every single day and they would offer sacrifices day after day after day. That was the holy place. That's what they did. And then the inner area, just beyond that curtain where they would go beyond that, it was the most holy place. And they would only go in there once a year. That was on the Day of Atonement, right? And they always went in there with the blood of a sacrifice. Okay? That's the two parts of the tabernacle that we see. It was set up in a way, just like Just like God said to Moses in the burning bush, right? Remember that story? Moses is out there. He's just tending cattle. All of a sudden, he sees this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. And basically, God gives Moses this spectacular burning bush and says, I want you to come close to me. But then he says, but that's far enough. You can't come come any closer. And the reason he did that is because God is holy, and if we're in his presence, then we're... We're gone, right? Have you ever seen Indiana Jones? Have you seen that? And, and, and how he's going after the Ark of the Covenant, and he opens it up, and his face is just like I, I don't know if that's what's going to happen or not. If we were in the presence of a holy God, maybe something like that. I don't know, you know. 
But God is saying, listen, I want to have this relationship with you, but because of my holiness and your sinfulness, that can't happen. And so I have to do something for that, right? And so um, God sets up this holy tabernacle for his people to worship. And he says, I want you to come, but, but you can't come all the way in. And so let, let's see what that, that even means to us, right? The elements in the holy place. When you first walk in, you get past this curtain, and the very first thing you see is this lamp stand, okay? You, you've seen this around before. When you, when you see, uh, maybe if you have a calendar that mentions Hanukkah, it's always got that, you know, menorah, uh, what's that called? Menorah, did I get that right? I was thinking Medora. I'm like, no, that's a school down south of Menorah. And, and it's this lampstand, and it's made up of these seven different lamps on this lampstand. It was a beautiful thing. And, and it was there for the practical purpose of just giving light. And you can imagine how this tabernacle in the middle of nowhere with these big heavy curtains, it's completely dark in there. There's no light in there except the light that was given by this lamp. All right, now this is pretty cool. I love the symbolic um, significance of each of these things. In Hebrews 9, 9, it says this whole tabernacle in the Greek, right, is paroble, paroble. So it's basically a parable. That's what the Greek is saying, right? It's a symbol. It's a representation. It was symbolically speaking about who Jesus is was and who he is. And so in John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. So Jesus is the light of God. He's speaking truth to us. He's illuminating us. He's communicating to us. And without him, we are in total darkness. And so what's amazing about this is you go into this holy place and it's pitch black without the light that's in there. And you go into the most holy place, it's, it's absolute darkness. But the Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. It's like, how, how is that even possible? How do you put these two things together? It's pitch black, but God is dwelling in unapproachable light. Well, the way you put them together is, is you know what makes that area pitch black, right? It, is God said, you can't come in here. You can't see me, right? God is forbidding us to come any closer. Not that it was actually pitch black, but he said, you can't look in here. You can't see here. I'm too holy. And then he gives us Jesus, the light. When, when Jesus comes, he was saying, now you can approach me through Jesus. He's the light that makes me approachable. And so it says in 1 John 1, 7, but we're, if we're living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We sang about that just a moment ago in that song, Tabernacle. And so that's basically what we're talking about, right? God, because of our sin, is saying you can't come any closer unless you're with Jesus, unless you're with the light. And then we see the table. Now, the table was golden, and it was beautifully made. They did everything beautifully. I'm, I know God instructed it that way. But what does it represent? Well, every time you see a table in Scripture, praise the Lord, it represents food. I love it. 
right? I think that's why pitch-ins are so biblical, right? It's like throughout Scripture, you see table represents food, and and we'll get more to that in, in just a minute, but there's this symbolism of fellowship. It's symbolic of this relationship. So if you're sitting at someone's table, if someone invites you to their table, you are having a relationship with them. You have friendship together. You're eating at someone's table, and because of that, you now have this fellowship. Think about what David said in the 23rd Psalm. He's speaking to God. He says, you prepare a table before me even in the presence of my enemies. God, I can have fellowship with you even in the midst of my storm, in the midst of my trouble, even when it feels like I'm completely surrounded. I get to have this fellowship. I get to have this feast with you. And so God wants us at his table fellowshipping with him. That's why communion to us is so important, why we feel it's a privilege to do it every week. Because we get to sit, sit at the, in the presence of Jesus and have that fellowship with him. And that leads to the next element that we see, and that's consecrated bread. You would see this in the tabernacle as well. If you look on the table, you see those, that's not pizza there. Those are, uh, or pancakes, they look more like pancakes. No, no, that's not what they are. It, It was bread, and it was referred to in the Hebrew as the bread of presence. And the bread of presence literally in the Hebrew means the bread of faces. And it represents God's desire to meet with him face to face so that he can feed us nourishment with the manna that God wants to provide for you. And Jesus is clearly, clearly the fulfillment of this, right? In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so that's what we see in the the outer outer tabernacle, right? We've got the lampstands, we've got the table, we've got the bread. And then when you move past that curtain into the holy of holies, into the the most holy place, there are some other elements that are there, right? If we look at verses 3 through 5, we see that most holy place. And, And in there, the first thing that you might see is this golden altar of incense. And then you would see the gold covered Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark contained a jar of manna, it contained Aaron's staff that had budded. We'll get to that story in just a moment. And then the stone tablets of the covenant, we've all seen that. Remember that when Charlton Heston came down off the mountain, in case you haven't read your Bibles. Uh, he comes down off the mountain and, and he throws the stones down on the ground and, and because the children of Israel had disobeyed, right? And so those are in there. And, and, and then above that, the Ark of, of the Covenant, we see these, these cherubim, these angels, and then the, the atonement cover. And so these are the elements that we see here. And it re- represented the place where God Almighty dwelt. That's where he met his people. Right? And the laws were very clear. No one's allowed to go in there ever except one day out of the year. And so every, every day, the, the priest would go into that outer place that we talked about. But one day a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine what kind of fear would be in a person of God? Not, not only would he be going in and and offering up a sacrifice for all of the people, but he had to offer up a sacrifice for himself as, as well. And so on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, it describes very plainly 
But there's all of these rules, right, about what's got to happen to enter the most holy place. And if you didn't do it right, you didn't follow all the rules, you could die. In fact, you know what they used to do? When the, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they, they had bells that were attached to his robe. And so as he's going in there and he's making his sacrifices and doing all of his things and walking around, you hear the bells. They're, they're out there going, okay, everything's good. But if the bells ever stopped ringing, mm-hmm. You know, we're back to Indiana Jones, you know, go again. And so the first element that's mentioned is this golden altar of incense. Now, we we don't burn incense in our services. A lot of churches do. More of your liturgical churches do that kind of thing. And that's, it's actually, you know, the more I think about it, I'm not saying we need to start doing it, but it's kind of a cool thing because here's what it represents, right? Incense was burned and, and a cloud filled the most holy place, right? And it would cover the ark, and it covered the ark so that the priest wouldn't die. And, and as we look at this, we see in the book of Revelation, we see in other places, that the cloud of incense represents prayer. It represents intercessory prayer. You say, okay, that's great. What's that all about? Isn't that what Jesus is doing for us even as we speak? The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. This represents Jesus going to the Father for us. And then, and then we've got the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was it's the most significant physical artifact that, that we talk about. It's talked about several chapters. It gives instructions uh, uh, about all of these different things that you got to do. It was the focal point where God would meet with his people and it was made up of pure gold. And at first, you know, it's just a box, right? Just a box. It was made up of acacia wood, but it was covered inside and out with pure gold. And it represented the dwelling of God. You remember when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen in 1 Samuel? Maybe some of you remember that story. And it was Phineas that cried out, Ichabod, the glory has departed from Israel. It represented the glory of God. And so when it was not there, the Israelites were, they were messed up. God is gone. But because of what Jesus did, he came And offered his life, he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary so that we can now have that relationship with him. And and then we see that above the ark there were cherubim where God said, I will meet you. And, And so basically that's the significance, right? So God is saying, listen, here's the ark. We see these angels above it here. We see this covering of atonement. We see this bread of life. We see all this stuff in here. And all of it points to Jesus very quickly. And I gotta tell you, when I stepped into the pulpit today, I was afraid this was gonna take forever today. I'm trying to wrap this up as quickly as possible. I am trying to get you to Roadhouse before the Baptist... But I don't know. Hang with me, all right? The golden jar of manna was inside the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, right? And I've already said this represents God. Remember that story in, in, uh, in the wandering of the, the wilderness? God provided supernaturally manna from heaven. Uh, and Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. He referred to himself as the bread of life. It's come down from heaven. So that's what that represents in there. 
Right? And then Aaron's staff was in there. More specifically, Aaron's staff that sprouted or Aaron's staff that budded. It's like, what in the world is that all about? Why is a stick in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it turns out that the Jews were jealous of Moses and Aaron, and there was a guy by the name of Korah. Uh, he led a rebellion, and you can read about it in Numbers chapter 16. He led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, specifically against Aaron. He had an issue with Aaron becoming the high priest. And he's saying, what right does he have to be the priest? Why can't it be somebody else? Probably more specifically me or somebody within my camp. And Moses, Moses and I probably would have gotten along pretty well because Moses had a little bit of a temper. I used to have a little bit of a temper. I, I, not so much anymore um, unless officiating is bad uh, at a ball game. And then I can get a little worked up. But... Moses had this temper from time to time, and, and you kind of sense that he's getting it here, right? It start, you can just, just start to rise up in him. He says, I'll tell you what, right? If you die in an ordinary way, then you will know that we've not been chosen by God. But if the earth should open up and swallow you, then you'll know God has chosen Aaron to be his priest. And it wasn't like that. The words are out of his mouth, and the ground opens up and swallows Korah. I, I bet Korah wished he had that to do all over again. And, and, and it swallowed him and all of those that were a part of this rebellion against God. But amazingly, after this happened, the Israelites are murmuring against Aaron. Isn't that incredible that they see this amazing thing happen? They know is of God, and the very next day they start complaining. And so Moses said, listen, guys, here's what we're going to do. Each of you bring forward a staff, just a stick cut from a tree, and, and lay it down. So he had all of the tribes of Israel come and do that. And, and uh, one of them represented Levi, the tribe of Levi, and that, that was Aaron. And they wrote Aaron's name on it. And the next day, miraculously, this one staff, this dead thing in some amazing way, came to life. It was almost as if there was this beautiful root system within this dead branch that caused it to spring to life. It budded leaves. It even produced almonds that you could eat. I don't know if they did that or not, but you could have done that. And to me, when I see this, I think it represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is our high priest. He's been chosen. He's identified to Israel as our high priest. We don't need to go through all of that stuff anymore. And by his resurrection from the dead, there is this blossoming or this flowering that comes from him, this life-giving source. And from two, for 2,000 years, fruit has come from Jesus Christ. He continues to grow in each and every one of us. And Jesus, in that way, is identified as the high priest in a way that is far superior to even Aaron's staff. And so that was in there. Pointing us to one day there would be someone who was dead. And would come back to life. And then there's the stone tablets. Right? Stone tablets of the covenant. These represent the law of God. On the basis of the law, God relates to his sinful people. And these two stone tablets, they had the Ten Commandments on them. You remember how God carved these two stone tablets and had written on them? And the Bible says he did it with, uh, with his finger. The finger of God wrote these commandments. 
but the, the people of God, they already started disobeying and they, they form this golden calf. They start worshiping them. And then Moses again with his temper. I don't know if God wanted him to do what he did or not, but I think he probably did actually. Moses carried these two stone tablets down the mountain and he's enraged at their rebellion and he throws them down and they're shattered. And I think that's symbolism of the fact that, listen, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're not going to keep all the Ten Commandments. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to be perfect. You can strive for that, but you're going to blow it every once in a while, right? But more tablets were made proving that the law of God cannot disappear. And so the Ten Commandments were written again with the finger of God. They're placed in the box. They're placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And this clearly represents Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law of God. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And so Jesus died in obedience to the law. And just as through the disobedience, so also through the, through the disobedience of one man, Sin came into the world, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, we all have the opportunity to be made righteous, right? We're counted righteous based on our testimony, right, of God and, 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 and entering into this new covenant with him. And then, and then the cherubim cover, that's the next thing that we see. Right? You, look, you look at the top of the Ark of the Covenant and you see these what look like, I mean, they look like birds, they look like eagles or whatever, but, but, but they're cherubs, they're, they're, they're angels, they're put on there uh, and their wings are, are touching and, and a lot of the Psalms talk about this and Ezekiel 1 talks about this. You, you've got it in the book of Revelation chapter 4 uh, verses 6 through 8, you've got these cherubs, you've got these angels around the throne, and, and they're saying, this is where God will meet you with these angels present and around this Ark of the Covenant. Such a beautiful, beautiful fulfillment of this in John chapter 20. We know the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember that? Mary's outside the tomb crying, and she's thinking she's talking to the gardener. Remember that story? And, and the gardener says, no, I'm why are you out here looking for, you know, a uh, dead guy when he's alive, right? And she goes into the empty tomb in John 20. It says she looks into that empty tomb and she sees the grave clothes, right? Jesus just comes right up out of those grave clothes. The grave clothes are still there. And she's looking in, and the Bible says there's two holy angels there, one at the head, one at the foot. And they're just sitting there in testimony of the fact that this is the new mercy seat. This is the new place where God wants to meet his people. It's been fulfilled. Listen, guys, that, that picture of, of the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubs, that was 4,000 years before Jesus came. 
And it was predicting what was going to happen on the day that Jesus rose from the grave. When he came up out of the tomb and there would be two angels there at either side of him when he resurrected. Saying, this is it now. This is it. The prophecy has been fulfilled. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the new covenant. And then we see this atonement cover, which is, this is the cover of the ark, and this is where the blood sacrifice was poured. The priest, the high priest would get the blood out in the outer area, bring it in one time a year, pour it uh, right over the gold cover, and, and that's where it was to be offered, on that atonement cover, the mercy seat, the place, if we want to get all fancy with our words, the place of propitiation, the place where God deals with our sins, and this was clearly fulfilled in the cross of Calvary through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life shedding his blood. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and you're baptized into him, the Bible says you have entered into this new covenant where your sins are forgiven. And then the Bible says he places his Holy Spirit inside of you and you literally become the walking, talking, breathing tabernacle of God where we don't have to go through all of these rules and regulations and dot all the I's and cross all the T's to have this relationship with him if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you do what his word says and you're obedient to him in in repentance and in baptism the Bible says he fills you with his Holy Spirit and you are literally the temple of God. That's why we can sing, I'm the tabernacle of the Most High God. His Holy Spirit dwells inside of me and I will live to glorify my King. Guys, come on up here if you don't mind. I will live to glorify my King. And then it says, uh, I am a vessel for His majesty. Guys, here's, here's the thing. Um, we're a vessel for His majesty. I, lo I love the way that says that. People are looking at us. They know we're Christians. We need to represent God in a way that is accurate. A way that is honoring. We need to make our lives a testimony to Him, to His goodness. We need to glorify Him as the King of our lives. Would you just stand, and, and, and here's what I want, I want Spencer and Lauren to just, we're just going to sing this a little bit slower, and with just our voices and the guitar, just sing that, oh praise the Lord, come bless the maker, can we just sing that part of it there, oh praise the Lord, come bless the maker. Oh praise the Lord. Come bless the Maker, lift up your voices and lift them high when we are one. 
Oh, praise the Lord, come bless the man. 